Good morning, Hope Community Church. Uh, welcome to church. It's good to see you. Uh, for those that don't know me and those that maybe do, maybe forgotten, my name is Paul Seifer. Uh, I am on staff with Hope. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. Uh, and um, uh, it's like I haven't been up here in a while. I haven't gotten the chance to preach in a while. And one of the reasons why, I want to give a quick update. Uh, Allison, my wife here, and I went out to Las Vegas, Las Veggies, um, to be assessed as a church planting couple by an organization called Acts 29. Maybe you saw we asked for some prayer in the weekly email a while ago. By the way, if you're not getting the weekly emails, there's a little card in the back with a QR code on it. You can scan that and sign up, or you can go to hopecc.com connect. Nailed it uh, to sign up to get our weekly newsletter sent for lower towns. Uh, but we were assessed by this organization. I want to share this update real quick. We were recommended to plant a church. So, yeah, that's exciting. We're very thankful to the Lord uh, for that. Um, and I just want to give that quick update. That was kind of one of the reasons why I haven't been up here in a while getting the chance to preach. We are in a new sermon series. Okay, we got one. New Sermon Series Alert. The Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. This is a book written by a, an author named Chris Bruno. Uh, and we're going to be looking at this summer, the story of the Bible in 16 verses in 14 weeks. Uh, and so we've got all kinds of stuff here. This image, the different examples today, we're looking at creation and human beings. But this is, this is God's grand story written in the Bible as we trace it throughout the scriptures and it puts together uh, an understanding. So I'm actually really excited about this series because uh, whether you are a seasoned Bible reader, maybe you've been reading your Bible for years or even decades, or you're new to the Bible, this is really a beautiful opportunity to get to see God's grand story. Uh, another way for a word for grand story is meta narrative. This is a picture of a bunch of different Green Bay Packer fans, and I share this to get to the idea of meta narrative. Maybe you've heard this word more recently in our culture, um, but meta narrative just kind of means grand narrative, an overarching storyline that gives kind of meaning and understanding and purpose to a shared group of people and helps us interpret our lives. It's a structure for beliefs. Uh, it's kind of that way we think about our world as a meta narrative, and and oftentimes so. So, for example, these Packer fans would share a meta-narrative of winning, often, just a lot of winning, um, although recently maybe not so much, and it's, it's kind of sad. Um, but they would, if they, if they met each other, they would have things in common. They'd be able to share things in this grand story together. Sorry, I've got to move this fan a little bit. All right. Uh, and so that's a meta-narrative, and oftentimes a meta-narrative will have kind of four elements. We see these in movies. Uh, or all kinds of things, for example. The meta-narrative will have an origin story, how things began. It will have a problem. Why are things the way they are? Uh, it will have a solution. Here's the hero. And then it will have a glorious future. Now, once that solution has happened, here's what the world will look like. Today, we're going to focus on the origin story. What's the Bible's origin story according to the scriptures, according to what God has said? Just an origin story example we all know. Uh, or most know, I should say, is Spider-Man, right? He was bitten by a radioactive lizard. It's a joke. It was a spider. He was bitten by a spider, right? And he inherits these abilities, and then he wrestles, and, and, he, and he gets some money, and he lets a criminal go, and the cop's like, why'd you let him go? And he's like, you know what? I'll become Spider-Man. That's uh, kind of his origin story a little bit. Uh, pretty accurate example. Um, and so today we're going to look at the origin story as God lays it out in the scriptures. But before we do that, 
we've got to look at how we read the Bible and particularly how are we reading the Bible here at Hope and how is that coming through in our sermons, in our classes, in our own personal study. And so looking at how we read the Bible and looking at this grand storyline, we kind of have these four major categories when we're reading the Bible left to right. So if you if you grab a Bible, you're holding it in your hand, you start in the book of Genesis and you read it all the way through to Revelation, which we all do all the time. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, this is kind of the major sections you're going to see. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation is in the beginning in Genesis, we're going to be looking at today, when things are beautiful. There's harmony between God and humankind and the creation itself. And things are in the right order and have a beauty and a purpose and then shortly after that, we get the fall. Sin enters the world. Human beings reject God as king and things are now marred. Things are not beautiful. They aren't the way they should be. And right away though, and that's in Genesis chapter three, we get that very beginning of the book, but right away, God makes a promise that he's going to redeem and, and that redemption ultimately is accomplished in Christ, but it begins far before that. And so redemption comes at through, first the attempt is through Israel and that clearly doesn't work. And so Jesus comes and now then in his redemption on the cross ushers in this new age as the old age is kind of being phased out, the new age coming in as more and more people come under Christ as Lord, we get to restoration. And this is the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, this beautiful picture that we see over and over throughout this series of God declaring there will be no more mourning or crying or death or pain for the old order of things has officially passed away and the new has come. And so that's kind of the storyline of the Bible if we're reading it left to right. But that's a little different than how we interpret the Bible. The way we interpret the Bible here at Hope is through the lens of Jesus. When Jesus comes on the scene, it's a, imagine like you're in a dark room and then you turn on a lamp and now you, the things you could maybe make out a little, now you see in clarity. When we look at the Old Testament, we see things a little bit, we get a little understanding, but when Jesus comes on the scene, it illuminates everything and now it all makes sense. So we actually read the Bible backwards. And we take what we understand most clearly, which is what Jesus has revealed and accomplished, and we read it back in the light of what he has done. In a way that we've always kind of, or that I always articulate that is uh, through the movie National Treasure. Obviously this movie is a national treasure. Nicolas Cage is a national treasure. If you haven't seen it, it's this big treasure protection hunt. And they, they, he says, I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. Classic. And uh, so they do, because they need to unlock this treasure map, um, but they can't unlock and see the treasure on the back of the, of the Declaration of Independence until he has these lenses. They don't have what it takes to see the full picture. Well, Jesus is these lenses. When we come to the Bible, Jesus is those lenses. When we put on the, the, the vision of Jesus in the scripture, now we go back to the Old Testament and forward in the new, and we see the unfolding of God's plan with great clarity. And Jesus himself actually tells us this. At the end of Luke, after he's risen from the dead, uh, he's meeting with the disciples and he says in Luke chapter 24, it says in verse 44 here, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is just another way for saying the entire Old Testament. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them 
This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I played a lot of team sports growing up and, and we're always told by our coaches it's about the name on the front of the jersey. You represent the school. It's not about you. You're on a team. Well, here's Jesus pointing to the name on the back of the jersey. He's saying the whole Old Testament, and in fact, everything God was doing was about me. And he doesn't do it in a, in a bragging and boastful way. He's just telling the truth of who he is. He's saying the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the whole Old Testament is about me. And actually, one of the exciting things about this series is we're going to see that. We're going to start to get to understand how it's all about Jesus and then what that means for us. And so this week's sermon starts off with creation and human beings. Uh, one of the fun things about this series, we actually, uh, Pastor Drew from Columbia Heights made a, a printout of the whole book of the storyline of the Bible, the 16 verses we're going to be looking at. These are available in the fireside room after church. Take one with you or take a couple Bring, read them as a devotional, as a family devotional, study them, meditate on them. It's actually really going to be a fun time going through this series. Um, real quick, so we're going to be in Genesis 1, 31, and then looking at uh, 26, 27, a creation, of, creation account, and then human beings. Uh, I just really want to clarify one thing this sermon is not. We're not going to go through the entire Genesis 1 and argue, here's what God did, here's what science says, or here's what, we're not going to do that. What I do think we will do, though, is portray the origin story as God tells it that he wants us to know as his people. And I think that there, we're going to see a beauty and a coherence that comes from that that actually is a contrast to other things we could talk about. Real quick as we dig in from the book by Chris Bruno, the whole story of the Bible in 16 verses, he says this. Our view of the world begins with our view of God. The way we think about God shapes the way we think about everything else along with the way we act and respond to every circumstance. Because of this, we need to get our thoughts about God straight at the beginning of our journey. In other words, as we set out to tell the story of the Bible, we have to begin with God. He is the author of the Bible and the hero of every story found in it. So we can't even think about telling the story without starting with him. And so let's do that with Genesis 1.1. The first verse in the Bible, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is going to start to explain what he's done, and he's going to start it with this. He wants us to know the true origin story, and it is him saying, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is what he wants us to know. It continues in Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so we see God is going to form things. And then what we're going to see in the rest of Genesis 1, he's going to fill things. But we have to see something here. Right there in verse 3, God says, let there be light. He speaks, and because of his word, there is light. Nachos. 
I don't have that ability. We don't have the ability to do what God does. Cody liked that one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He speaks things into being. This is the picture of his power. He's going to spend, in the Genesis chapter 1, is going to spend three more days forming the earth, or three days forming the earth, and then three days filling the earth. And what we're going to see, what we will see, we're not going to look at all of Genesis chapter 1, but what we see is God creates with purpose and order, and he fills everything with his goodness. He is, after all, the source of all goodness, because he's the source of all things. For example, if you eat a piece of chocolate cake and it tastes good, it's in some way a reflection of the goodness of God. And actually, that's what we get at the end of of Genesis 1. We see this. It says in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So what we get in Genesis 1, what we come to understand is God is king. He's the creator. He's the owner. A big word for that is he's sovereign. The creation is his. It belongs to him. He made it. And yet he's intimately involved, giving purpose and meaning and order and structure to things. He's good in his creation. When he looks on what he's made, it's very good. The Bible is littered, especially the Old Testament, with different passages that praise God just for his creativeness and his ability to make things so beautiful and good. Psalm 19 says it this way in the first three verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands day after day. They pour forth speech night after night. They reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the world. That when we look at the creation, it testifies to the goodness of God. It speaks even though it can't speak. God is praised as creator throughout the Bible. His creation brings him praise. The pinnacle of this creation we see in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the thing to bring him praise, the creation of human beings. Starting in verse 26, it says this. Then God said, let us make mankind, other translations say humanity, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So right there in verse 26, we see that God's giving human beings dominion over everything else he's just made in Genesis 1. What I don't have in here is is verse 28, but it shows where God blesses them. It says, be fruitful and multiply. He wants his people to spread his glory across the face of the earth. And so how does he make these people? Verse 27, in his own image. Male and female created in the image of God. The big theological term when we do systematic theology for this is the imago Dei. That all human beings are made in the image of God. Uh, I often go to this Africa Bible commentary. I love how clear it is, but it says this of this passage. Human beings, both male and female, are said to have been made in the image of God. 
Thus, humans are different from other created beings like animals, and this fact has important consequences for how we live. First of all, it means that every human being resembles his or her creator in some way. Consequently, every human being is special and important. Every human being is special and important because they are made in the image of God. He has put his stamp on us. You look at anyone in this room or anyone we can picture, they are made in the image of God, which means they are special and important. One of the ways we describe it is that everyone has equal dignity, personhood, and worth because it comes from outside of us. It isn't that, oh, I'm, I'm attractive or, oh, I do positive things, so therefore I have worth. It is God saying, because I've made you in my image, you matter. So to be in the image of God is to be made like him in some way, to resemble our creator, to put, his, put forth his goodness and his glory through our own lives. We're made to represent God. One of the ways this has been talked about sometimes is uh, that, that statues of kings would be put forward and the statue would be in some place even though the king wasn't there and it was meant to represent who that person is. We were made to represent God. And so the story so far is this from the book again. God created a kingdom and he is the king. But he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. That we were to delight in him, to enjoy his creation, but enjoy him more to fill the world with his goodness. That's our origin story. All right, end of sermon. That's it. Oh, wait. Hold on, there we go. It sure doesn't seem very good. When I look around, I don't see goodness. I see evil. I see people not treating other people with dignity. I see people not reflecting goodness. I, I see myself failing to live up to even my own image of myself, much less the image of God. I see badness. I see violence, hatred. It doesn't seem very good. Why? What is the Bible's explanation? And, and Brian's really going to dig into that next week in Genesis chapter 3, the fall. But, but we're going to look at a different angle on it here from Romans 1 in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is going to give us a coherent understanding of why things are the way they are. He says, for although, he's talking now, they knew God. He's using we language. This includes us. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. People have rejected God as king, Paul is saying, and turned to the things he's made to treat them as king. Now, you might be reading this and say, I don't bow to a human being, and I certainly don't bow to a 
like a reptile or an animal. But he's talking about the biblical concept of idolatry, idol worship. And idol worship runs much deeper than just bowing to a statue. Idol worship is anything in the creation that we put in the place of God. When we say, God, you know, I, I, I care about you, but man, I really like expressing my sexuality. Or I care about you, but I really want this promotion. Or I care about you, but I want to have control. I want people to do what I say. I care about you, but man, if this other person approved of me, if they just said, hey, you're doing a good job, that would make my life. We make this exchange where we reject God as king and start to worship something in the creation. And when we do that, the image of God in us, the way we were to reflect who he is and his glory is marred. It's distorted. It's like looking in a broken mirror. We're still kind of there. The image of God is not lost. His stamp is still on us. But we don't reflect him in the ways that we were made to because we've rejected him as king. So then we ask, how do we fix it? How do we fix this? If this is the case, if we're not fully human, if we're not living how we're supposed to be, if we're worshiping other things, what's the solution. We're going to try a new segment this summer called You've Heard It Said. And just look at ways maybe in the church and maybe in culture these themes and these verses have been talked about. Maybe you've heard it said as far as being good uh, in church, be a good Christian. Just be a good Christian. Be a good person. What the gospel, what the Bible really is about is believing the gospel, getting your fire insurance, so to speak, your get out of hell free card. And then just go and be a good person. Maybe that looks like voting a certain way. Maybe that looks like praying before meals, going to church on holidays. Maybe it looks like maybe just try really hard not to lie or cuss or drink too much. And maybe by the end of your life, just have a little bit more in the good scale than the bad, the good balance on the scale than the bad. Just be a good Christian. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe that's the church background was just kind of be a good person. I got saved and I'll just go and be a good person. Maybe you've heard in culture, create yourself, transform yourself. And you might be thinking, I, I don't know where, I don't, I don't think I see this in culture. Uh, there's a place called Barnes and Noble. It's a bookstore. You go, you actually go in, you can like touch books. It's not Amazon. It's real. And if you go in there, one thing I've noticed over the years is the change in the sections, the, the genres of books, history, biography, etc., is there's a massive section called self-transformation. What used to be self-help is now self-transformation because culture is telling me I have what it takes in me to change myself. If you don't believe that? Maybe you remember an old school advertisement called uh, by Adidas where they said impossible is nothing. Don't look at your limitations. Look at what you can do. Look within yourself. Transform yourself. Or even more recently, Squarespace, the online company, uh, said you've got your nine to five, but here now is your five to nine. That you, you take nine to five, you work, and then do your side hustle from five to nine. That sounds brutal because I'm working 12 hours a day. So what? So I can transform myself and my circumstances. But the reality is transformation has to come from outside of ourselves by nature of what it means. Some synonyms of it are conversion, metamorphosis. We need someone acting upon us 
And for that we turn to nothing more urgent than the onion. If you guys know this, I read this a lot in college, the onion newspaper, it's a satire, but it actually hits on something really good here. So it says 35 year old, unsure why he, I think it's supposed to say was, why he was underwhelmed by first place win in Magic the Gathering tournament. Magic the Gathering, just a card game. I don't know a ton about it, but you, he won the tournament. He's unsure why he's underwhelmed. I've got to read this though. This is, this actually gets at what we're talking about. It says, saying he lacked any sense of personal fulfillment following the victory, local 35-year-old Jason Prasker reported Thursday that he was unsure why he felt so underwhelmed by his first place win in a regional Magic the Gathering tournament. Yeah, it's strange. I worked for this for years and yet somehow taking this ho home this trophy today, I feel kind of empty inside. A visibly perplexed Prasker said as he packed his magic deck back into its custom carrying case, adding that he did not understand why his defeat of everyone in the conference center at a trading card game involving wizards and goblins seemed devoid of any great meaning. It's weird. You'd think after a profound achievement like this, I'd feel content with my life. Maybe if I win another tournament, then I'll truly be happy. Multiple sources later described the situation as unfortunate, noting that with the tournament victory, Prasker had, in fact, realized his full potential as a human being. That one's, that's a little harsh at the end there, but. We're all this guy. We're all looking to something to say, that'll make me new. Maybe if this happens in my life, if this falls this way, this domino breaks this way, if this thing happens, doesn't happen, maybe that next thing will make me new. The problem with both of these approaches, with, with just be a good person or with transform yourself, is we're rejecting God as king. We say, I'll set it up my way. Be a good person and say, here's what I think is a good person. I'm going to go do it. Hopefully it's good to you, God. I don't, maybe. We'll see what you think. Create yourself, transform yourself. I want to be the king. I want to be a self-created person where both situations set us up as the ruler of our lives. But the gospel, you've heard it said, but the gospel tells you different. Only Jesus makes people new. Only Jesus makes all things new. The answer to the problem of us not reflecting God or not even living up to our own image is the gospel. So we've got to put on our Jesus lenses again. Grab your Jesus lenses. I know you all packed them. <laughs> and then, uh, we've got to look at this from the lens of the New Testament, starting in John chapter 1. And look, remember where we were in Genesis 1, what it said. Now here's John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See what John's saying? Does this recall Genesis 1, 1 through 5? He's saying Jesus coming to earth is new creation. Something new is happening. Here comes a new origin story. And in fact, this was the plan all along. Romans 8 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is unpacking the gospel. And he says this in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30, but we're really going to key in on 29. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. But look what it says, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This was God's plan all along, not just to make us in his image, but to remake us in the image of his son. He was not surprised by our rejection of him as king. And he had a redemption plan from all eternity. When he saw us reject him, he did something about it. So we have a new central aspect of our meta-narrative. 2 Corinthians 5.17, this was actually my baptism verse when I got dunked at age 27, says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. They're a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. This is what Jesus does. He makes people new. This is the kind of new creation newness that just trying to be a good person or win a Magic the Gathering tournament or transform myself cannot bring. It's something that Jesus brings from outside of us to make us new. And then 2 Corinthians 3 says this, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we had lost the image of God. Christ comes to make us new. And then as we behold him and his beauty, we look him in the face, we see him in the gospel, it changes us. We're transformed to look like him, which was God's plan all along. And God accomplishes this through the gospel. And for that, we've got to see Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It says this, of Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 gives us our origin story. It tells us we are made in the image of God. That image gets marred as we reject God as king. We become less than beautiful and less than good. And look what it says here. The son who is not just made in the image of God, he is the image of God, comes to earth to make us new, to make us whole again. And how does he do it? Verse 20, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That in order to be made new, we need our Savior, our Creator's life, death, and resurrection. 
We need the true image of God marred in death so we might be remade in his image. We need the beautiful to die for the broken, the glorious to die for the shameful, the king to die for his enemies. Our exchange was creator for creation. God's exchange was his son for sinners. And when we see that, when we really come to understand that, we're changed. That he takes me an enemy and makes peace with me through the blood of his beautiful son. So now I can be a new creation simply through faith, simply through coming under Christ as king by putting my trust in him. And so we have to then behold what, he, what the tool of this, the cross. We have to come back to this gospel over and over, not to try and be a good person or to change ourselves, but to behold the one who has done it. So as we look at this, I wanted to bring this, this song, this hymn by Isaac Watts in front of us again. It says, when I survey the wondrous cross, this is how we're changed. This is how we're made new. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Were every realm of nature mine, my gift would still be far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So we have a new central defining event in our meta-narrative and the way we think about ourselves and our world and it's the cross of Christ. Where the beautiful dies for the broken, the glorious for the shameful. And so as we look at the story, then God is creator. We were created to be like him, to display his glory and we rejected him. So he sent his son to be rejected for us so that now we might be remade in his image, that we might become beautiful. And that one day he's going to make all things new. So I think gospel application, just gotta, I, I say this in love. Stop trying to be king. Stop looking at those other things. I need this too. He's the king. He's our creator. He's our ruler. And only he can provide the satisfaction our hearts truly need. Nothing in the creation can fulfill that. So we get the chance, instead of rejecting him, to accept him, to come under his lordship, to trust in him, even when it doesn't make sense. And then just a reminder for us, in Christ you are a new creation. I think sometimes in life we get so bogged down looking at ourselves and all of our shortcomings and flaws, all the ways we don't measure up even to our own image of who we ought to be. But God says of the, us this, if you are in my son, you are a new creation. You are mine and I'm making you like him. So maybe today's the day you could put your faith in Christ and become a new creation. The new creation can dawn in your heart Receive the Spirit and be made new by believing in His gospel, accepting Him as King. We're going to move now to a time of communion. Uh, we do this every week here at Hope Lower Town, and it's a time to be reminded of the gospel. Uh, we've got the cups here and the juice that uh, represent His body broken for us, His blood shed for us. And we take these in remembrance of what he's done and in remembrance of the reality that now because of him, we are a new creation.
and we have a future and a hope and purpose and meaning beyond anything this world can offer. So as we take of this communion, you can, we're going to play a few, couple songs and, and respond to God in worship. You can take this communion and just remember that. Remember that good news and be refreshed in the fact that Jesus is king and he's won the victory for his enemies, which is every one of us. All right, I'm going to pray and invite the worship team up and we'll conclude. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and that you created this world to be very good and created us to be reflections of your goodness in the world, and we have rejected that call. And yet, by your grace, you sent your Son, who is in your very image, to die for us who rejected you, so that we might now be brought near, we might be reconciled, and we might actually be changed by your work in us, by your goodness to us. God, I pray for the rest of this sermon series, that you would be revealing the glory of your plan, and the beauty of your son to us all the more that we might be able to better and better understand our story and our meta narrative and to discern those false narratives that come at us trying to steal our joy and make us reject you again. God, have mercy on us and be with us now. Be honored and glorified as we worship you with the rest of service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.